Well, thank you and good morning, everyone. I'm Gary Anderson, Chief Operating Officer of Prologis. Uh, Prologis is the world's leader in logistics real estate solutions. We operate just under 1 billion square feet of logistics properties in 19 countries around the world. The current economic value of goods that flow through Prologis buildings about, is about 2.2 trillion US dollars or about two and a half percent of the world's GDP. Now, I have been with the company for 26 years. I have had the pleasure and honor of running virtually all of our real estate businesses in most of the geographies that we operate. And I've seen our company have tremendous success, going basically from a de novo startup to a large multinational, call it uh, S&P, maybe 75 or so today. And while I am tremendously proud of what we've accomplished to date, I'm most excited about the work that I'm doing and actually the work that the company's doing right now today. Our company is positioning itself for the future. We're becoming more customer-centric, we're becoming more data-centric than ever before, and we're working to leverage our scale advantage to the benefit of our 5,500 global customers. To that end, we've begun to reshape our local real estate teams to become customer experience teams and customer advocates. And we've launched a new line of business called Prologis Essentials and PrologisEssentials.com in an effort really to create a place where we can deliver solutions beyond the real estate, beyond four walls and a roof. And while real estate will always be our core business, we intend to help our customers solve their major pain points in areas adjacent to our real estate, areas that include labor and transportation and energy, material handling and automation. So again, while I'm thrilled with the success the company's had to this point, I'm even more optimistic about the company's future. So with that, let me turn it to my good friend, Ken Byer, to introduce himself and his company, Ingram Micro. Thank you, Gary. Hello, everyone. Uh, I run one of the three business units at Ingram Micro called Commerce and Lifecycle Services. It's essentially an e-commerce fulfillment and reverse logistics business. Uh, you may know Ingram Micro as the world's largest technology distributor, uh, but what you may not know is we now ship more products that are non-tech than tech. It's quite likely the device you have in your hand right now, uh, whether it's a computer or cell phone, came from an Ingram Micro Distribution Facility. But we also ship jeans and shoes and food and beverage and lots of consumer goods. And that's because we've really invested in growing our e-commerce fulfillment business. Um, as most of you know, e-commerce has been one of the fastest growing segments in the logistics space. And Ingram had the foresight uh, many years ago to leverage its large logistics facility of over 150 uh, facilities in over 39 countries to create a third-party logistics service for e-commerce fulfillment. And I've had the opportunity to run that business for the last seven years since Ingram acquired the business that I co-founded in September of 2013. So, Gary, I'm glad to be a client of Prologis, and uh, I think you're one of the most creative and value-added uh, real estate partners that we have. I look forward to the conversation. So, Ken, before we get started, I have to ask you, how are you holding up? Um, you've got a great home office. We're all sort of dealing with this new normal, uh, you know, environment, seemingly endless Zoom calls. Questions is, how are you doing? Yeah, thanks for asking. And, you know, I think for me, it's been a great almost reset button. I travel 250,000 miles a year all over the world. And to be home full time for the last six months and see my wife and kids has been, you know, a real treat. Um, but on the other hand, probably like you, I think Zoom fatigue is, is completely set in now. And um, I long for the days when I can just walk down the hall and have a random conversation with somebody and uh, get that human interaction. How's it been for you? 
So Ken, look, I feel exactly the same way. I think I've been traveling a similar amount uh, internationally for almost a decade, and I don't think I'm ever going to go back to work uh, that same way ever. Um, you know, from a personal standpoint, like you, spending time with the family has been tremendous. And I have to say, probably for the first time in my 54 years, I actually noticed that, you know, the flowers bloom in the springtime and the uh, flowers and, and uh, leaves start to change in the, in the fall, which I think is the first time that I've ever noticed that in my, in my history. But in truth, I've been actually quite surprised and um, I guess impressed with how well our teams have adapted uh, you know, to sort of this new normal and the way that they're performing, it's quite remarkable. And like you, I don't think Zoom ever replaces sort of in-person interactions, um, you know, the way that we share information, the way that we build relationships. Uh, but I do think that it's an important tool that we've all learned to use and leverage. And uh, like many of the technologies that we're going to have to uh, leverage coming out of this thing, uh, I think it's an important one. Let me ask you this question, uh, kind of the sa along the same, same lines. Is Ingram Micro doing anything in particular to position itself differently from a digital standpoint uh, as a result of the current environment? Yeah, we've always been investing heavily in digital, but I think the pandemic was really a shock to the system and made a lot of us, you know, accelerate things we probably should have been doing ahead of the pandemic. And now that we have done them, we'll probably continue to do them going forward, you know, much like you said with your travel. Um, so we've invested in doing virtual tours, for example, of our warehouses. So customers don't have to come out to the site to see the warehouse and see how it operates. Uh, we've built digital twins of our facilities to, uh, so we don't have to bring engineers into the site and, uh, to optimize the way our equipment works and things like that. Um, and obviously all the virtual meeting tools and things that, uh, that we all use. So I think those will become the new normal going forward and, honestly shows us that there's things that we can do very quickly uh, if we need to. It's funny. We, we've been doing the exact same. So, you know, we sort of took the, the mindset that we wanted to ensure that we, come, we came out of the crisis in a stronger position than we went in. And like you, we had been investing in uh, digital and, and data pretty heavily. So we had a pretty good foundation to build from. But today we're trying to create that environment where we can interact with our colleagues in a way that makes sense for them, interact with our customers on a 24-7 basis so they can choose when and where they interact with us. So I, I think it's very similar, and I completely agree. I think if you're going to come out of this crisis stronger than you went in, you have to heavily invest in technology and begin to leverage it in ways that we haven't before. So look, one of the things that I want to talk to you about, uh, I think you know that we have a customer advisory board. I'm sure you know it, uh, as a matter of fact. And it consists of some of the world's largest uh, companies and users of logistics space. For the past several years, I would say that the single greatest challenge that those customers have said that they face is labor. Actually, it's the top three, labor, labor, and labor. So can you describe for me a little bit about uh, how Ingram Micro is trying to differentiate itself with respect to labor or how it's trying to manage that challenge. You're right, and I've enjoyed participating on those customer advisory uh, panels uh, for many years. Um, look, first let me start by saying that our employees, particularly our warehouse employees, our, they are our key asset. And really during this pandemic have been the heroes of our business in terms of keeping it running and keeping the packages that most people think just magically appear when they push the buy button on their doorstep. Um, and so, you know, it's really the area that we focus most heavily on is 
how do we recruit, retain, train, and um, help our employees have a really positive and engaging experience when they work for us. But I would be remiss to say that it's not also our biggest challenge because with over 15,000 full-time employees in our warehouses around the world, which scales up to 25 to 30,000 during the holiday season, it comes with lots of challenges. Um, Particularly right now, um, it's difficult to attract talent. Even without the pandemic, it was tough. But now with the pandemic, uh, the government subsidy in most countries pays people more to stay home than to come to work. So um, you'd think with the unemployment where it is, uh, we, we would have no problem getting people to our warehouses, but it's, it's actually quite the opposite. It's been a, a big challenge. So what we've been doing is really just focusing on being a very attractive employer. We invest in our communities. We help invest in our employees so they can grow within our business. Uh, and we're doing creative things too, like shortening shifts and adding more shifts so that people can be more flexible when they come to work. Uh, so those are things we're trying to do, but I wouldn't say that we have it figured out. It's a, it's something that every day we come into work and we figure out how to how to be better and 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 help our employees who, like I said, are really the heroes of of uh, this pandemic. Have you have you tried changing the way that you source talent? Tried any new techniques? Any new technologies? We're always evaluating the technologies, um, and I'm sure you guys have looked at some great technologies that we could benefit from. Uh, we're really using social media a lot more than we ever have. Um, and the world has really moved to social media. So we've created a, you know entire social media campaigns around working in our facilities. And that's been a big um, driver of candidates to our facilities. Um, but we're competing with everybody else. So it's, you know, it's, it's a very competitive market. So you've constantly got to be innovating and adapting your strategies to make sure that you uh, become uh, an employer of choice. So, so, Ken, I think you're familiar with ProLogic Ventures. I may have a tip for you. And, um, you know, yeah. there are corporate venture arm, as you know, and their charge is to invest in disruptive businesses and technologies and hopefully get out in front of them so that we can leverage them ourselves or hopefully put them in a position to, for our customers to leverage. I think, you know, Will O'Donnell and team have looked at something like 5,000 different businesses. They may be invested in 25, so maybe half of 1% or something like that. But one of the companies that they've invested in recently is a company called Workstep. And um, it's a company that's built out a digital platform to hire and retain full-time workers. And um, they're really beginning to focus on the logistics sector. So this is going to be a part of uh, our suite of offerings over time uh, as we begin to tack uh, and hopefully help you uh, with some of your labor issues. Sticking with that theme, well, I'll let you answer if you... No, I, I think it's a fantastic idea, Gary. Um, particularly if you think about where your facilities are, there's probably lots of other people like us that need labor in that same immediate area. And if you know about labor availability in a market, and maybe one company doesn't need as much at a certain time, others need more, you guys can play a bit of a middleman there and, and provide opportunities that we may not know exist based on the data that we see. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because I think labor is something like 30 to 35% of total supply chain costs. So when you guys are looking at um, site location decisions, how important is labor availability to that decision? I mean, it's buildings don't operate themselves. So, uh, you know, <laughs> if we can't find the labor, it's, it's not going to be much use. It's, so it's a, it's a huge part of our decision criteria. Every time we go into a market, it's um, 
not only labor availability, but who else are we competing with for that labor, the quality of that labor, um, you know, various factors. But it's, it is, if not the top criteria, it's one of the top two. So, you know, one of the things that we realized is that with each facility that we build or buy, we're effectively making a 50-year commitment to that investment and to that community, basically. And what we've realized is that if we don't ensure that there is a high-quality labor pool in the vicinity, that investment and potentially even that community uh, could fail. So one of the things that we're doing right now is we've launched our community workforce initiative, CWI we call it, where we're partnering with local communities to develop training programs for logistics careers. And we've really started to ramp that thing and get it off the ground. And we intend to train about 25,000 people by 2025 to help support the industry, the communities that we work in, and obviously the customers that lease space from us. You know, one of the big, big challenges for us has been trying to figure out how to scale it. You know, you can't just go out and build a whole bunch of bricks and mortar, um, you know, schools effectively, classrooms. So we're, we're learning, we're scaling, we're trying to leverage technology, we're trying to build virtual classrooms, we're, le we're leveraging actually um, virtual reality technology to allow students to get their hands on training in a simulated environment. So at any rate, um, one of the things that we're trying to do in conjunction with WorkStep and other um, uh, sort of methods to bring hopefully quality labor to, to our buildings and, and, and to you. I think that's a fantastic idea. And, you know, many of these communities where uh, distribution facilities typically have been are in need of investment. And I think if you guys can lead and other companies like ours can lead in investing in those communities, they're hungry for the jobs and, uh, the, you know, the investment that will bring back to their, their community. So I think it's a fantastic idea and we'd love to partner with you on it. So, so you mentioned seasonality and you and I have talked about this topic before and I know that it's a big uh, headache. How are you guys dealing with that issue? Yeah, you know, when the pandemic hit in March, um, we didn't get the typical three months to plan for, for peak season like we normally do. So our team has um, done what we would normally do in, in, you know, six months really to plan for, for holiday season in a matter of weeks. Um, and not just, you know, the ramp up of labor and, and volume, but also the cleaning of the facilities and dealing when and dealing with cases of, uh, of COVID in the facilities. So I can't say enough about how agile and resilient the teams have been in facing what essentially has become a peak season for us, you know, in the middle of the year. But specifically to your question, how do we deal with seasonality? Um, it's one of the big issues, I think, in, in e-commerce overall is that, you know, when, when, 60, 70% of the business or the volume happens in the last, you know, eight weeks of the year, it has a big impact on capacity utilization of facilities the rest of the year. And how do you handle that? And so I think, you know, working with our real estate uh, partners like Prologis, I think there's opportunities to think about how do you uh, pop up space for temporary use, but not have it for the full year? Um, how do you create, um, uh, facilities that can be shared with others, for example, that need it when we don't need it, you know, off-site, off off-season uh, goods, for example. So I think there is a role. I'd love to hear how Prologis is thinking about seasonality and creating more of a dynamic uh, space because it is a huge issue for us. 
Well, the, the, the concept that you just talked about, matching space, there is a company that we're partnering with right now called Flex, Flexi. And uh, that's effectively what they do. They're kind of warehousing on demand where they match customers with short-term space needs with customers that have short-term space ability, uh, availability. Pretty slick um, operation. I don't know if you've utilized them in the past, but um, they may be a potential solution. And I've got one other for you that is, it's, it's really early days, but um, there's a company out of Japan that we're working with called Taime. And um, they focus on basically temporary workers. And these might be workers who will work a day or even an hour. And this whole construct is getting, you know, a ton of traction in Japan right now. And the company is literally focusing on logistics real estate because they think it's a big opportunity for them. So, you know, I'm hopeful that they continue to get traction. We're able to bring that um, technology and that platform to bear, you know, on the U.S. So stay tuned there. I think it's one that has, um, has some legs. Great. I look forward to it. So whenever we talk about labor, uh, the conversation inevitably turns to uh, how does automation fit into that picture? And I know that Ingram is a huge um, user, an active user of automation. And I'm wondering, you know, what are your learnings uh, from deploying automation and how, does it, how has it impacted your labor strategy? You're right. Um... Labor is our biggest cost. Uh, it's very challenging in the current environment. And we want the employees that we have in our, in our facilities to be more engaged and have a more positive work environment. So the way that we've thought about automation is it's not an or. It's not human versus machine. It's and. And how can we help the great people we have in our warehouses perform their jobs better and make it easier on them? So most of the automation that you'll see in our facilities really supplements our labor, it doesn't replace it. And if you would ask the employees who work alongside the automation, they would say it makes their jobs uh, more uh, engaging. In other words, they're, they're doing tasks that uh, instead of walking up and down aisles, they're doing something that's more value added. And so as we scale the business, the biggest constraint on growing the business isn't demand. There's so much demand for, for e-commerce fulfillment. It's how can we add capacity? And with the labor shortages that we're facing, the way we add capacity is through automation. And so that's where we've invested in automation is increasing the utilization and the throughput of the existing facilities that we have uh, with the existing teams that we have. And, you know, we've made many uh, investments in automation. Uh, many of the, the top providers we have tested their products or implemented in our facilities around the world, uh, all the way from you know, fully automated fashion facilities to, you know, maybe having a, a robot walk alongside uh, a picker in an aisle. Uh, we've also made a, a substantial investment in a company called RoboFS, uh, which we think has a real paradigm shifting uh, view of how e-commerce uh, robotics should work. So it's something that we're very passionate about and we think it's key to our future. Well, we're going to have to compare notes on that. I think you could uh, educate some of our small to medium-sized customers on the topic and actually, you know, one of the things that we've been thinking about is how do we bring automation to those small to medium-sized customers? Clearly, customers like yours who are sophisticated have their own sort of automation strategies. But we've got companies in our platforms that aren't trying to move from sort of 90 to 95% efficiency. They're trying to move from 50 to 70% efficiency. And, um, you know, we've been working with a, a company, you might be familiar with Locust Robotics. They've got a pretty simple uh, to use robotic solution, and we're hoping to marry that up with an equally simple, very light WMS tool. 
with the intent of sort of bringing that combined technology to a broader cross-section of our customer base. I have no idea as to whether or not it will work, but it's something that we're going to test and try, and I'd love to get uh, your thoughts as we continue to sort of move that idea forward. Well, I've always believed that real estate companies needed to get more specific in the types of buildings that they're building. And I know we might get to it in, in a little bit in terms of what we think about the future, but uh, I think if you just look at what happened in the data center space, um, something similar will ultimately happen for e-commerce. In other words, purpose-built buildings for e-commerce, uh, like they did in data center real estate, where they built buildings just for data centers. And now nobody has their own server in their closet in their office. It's in some shared facility in the cloud, and uh, capacity is added wherever there's demand closest to the customer. And I think ultimately, a company like Prologis has a real opportunity to build a network of facilities that are pre-built for e-commerce, you know, data and, and uh, power and uh, robotics and WMS pre-installed. And uh, small, small and medium-sized companies can, can plug in just like they would, you know, the cloud with AWS or uh, Google Cloud. What do you think about that? <laughs> I'm going to force you to give me the secret sauce, you know, on that uh, on that plan. So we've got a uh, an initiative called the Smart Building. Um, I'm not sure if we've pitched it your direction yet, but so I'm curious as you think about sort of this the, the baseline IT infrastructure that you need just to get your facilities up and running. You know, Wi-Fi, basic internet, private network, whatever it is. What what are those things that you need just to get started? Um, well, first let me say that the IT and power and, and all of those basics is that's the longest lead time from the time we sign the lease with you to the time we start making dollar one. So it's a huge sunk cost for us. And, and if we could shrink that down, it would have a huge impact on our business. So you're focused in an area that is materially uh, impactful to us. The, the elements that we spend time on are, are uh, power drops, uh, redundant data and Wi-Fi, getting the RF network set up for scanning. Um, and then obviously installing all of the systems. And so uh, if you look at those basic components, they go into every building and they're very similar. Um, obviously, there's different drops based on the types of equipment we're going to be using each facility. But if you had a basic infrastructure already installed, it would save us months of time. Yeah, the lead time. We've heard something upwards of 90 days um, to just get set up with that basic infrastructure just to get it turned on, the Internet. That's right. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, just think about how long it takes you to get an internet line to your house, right? And it's it's twice as long to get it to your commercial building. So, so let me ask you a question about data. Um, so let's say that we actually did, were able to build a smart building for you that um, got you everything that you wanted. If you could have data captured and aggregated on an anonymous basis, what would be the most important data uh, for you to capture and understand? I'd like to understand that more. I think for us, in terms of the problems that we're trying to solve, that's where we need data. And the problems we're trying to solve, we talked about one already, labor. So if there's if there's metrics or, or data we could share around labor availability or utilization that gets fed back to us in some more localized form, um, that may be helpful. Um, how do we make our shipping more efficient, both inbound and outbound. So what's the capacity in the local area around our facilities of freight? Um, can we 
increase the the times, um, the efficiency of, of pickups within our facilities or the drop-offs at our facilities based on the data you guys are capturing in that local market and feeding back to us. That's off the, you know, off the cuff, but I think those are some of the problems we're trying to solve that perhaps data could help us solve. Right. You know, I find it funny. You know, you said that the sort of the real estate business and your business needs to come together in some ways. But I, I think about even the terms that we use and the way that we talk about our businesses. You talk about it in terms of pallet positions and, and you know, leveraging the queue. We talk about it in terms of square feet, right? Rent per square foot. Should we merge these things at some point in time so we're talking the same language? In other words, should we be quoting uh, rents on a cubic foot basis or on a pallet position basis? Well, I think anytime your your incentives are aligned with ours, it's good, right? Um, but if you think about why we're focused on the cube, is it's to you know maximize or leverage our fixed cost because we're paying you per square foot, and so the more we can leverage the cube, uh, the more we can squeeze out of that square footage. Um, if you quoted us on a cubic feet, I think it would align our interests. I think it'd be very difficult for you to measure. And for companies that don't do a good job of leveraging cubic feet, it might be difficult for you to make money. I don't know, but uh, it's an interesting conversation. But one thing you mentioned, which is is changing the e-commerce world, is pallet positions. You know, in most of our more automated uh, e-commerce facilities, we don't have pallets. Uh, product comes in floor stacked and it goes out floor stacked. And in the middle, it's all, you know, in an automated system. So it's one thing that's you know, really changing from from the retail distribution to e-commerce fulfillment is even the concept of pallets and pallet positions. So let, let's spend a little bit of time on e-commerce because obviously it's a big demand driver for logistics real estate. How has COVID accelerated e-commerce and how has that uh, acceleration affected your business? Well, let me ask you, have you bought more online since you've, uh, since you've been home? Absolutely. And so is my 83-year-old mother who never used, um, you know, sort of an e-commerce system pre-COVID. Exactly. And I think, you know, just you, know, you ask anybody anecdotally and, you know, folks that never bought online before the pandemic are now buying online. And like we said before in the conversation, I think it will it will stay. So um, some numbers I've seen as e-commerce has accelerated 10 years in, in the last three months. If you looked at the normal trajectory of, of e-commerce as a percent of retail sales, um, we're certainly seeing that in our business. Um, you know, customers' growth uh, has outpaced any previous year, and it's sustained. We thought maybe there would be a, a spike and it would come back down, but it's sustained. Um, so I think what that's done is retailers that had e-commerce, the good e-commerce infrastructure, realized most of their revenue during the pandemic was really just about e-commerce because no one was going into a retail store. Now, conversely, retailers that didn't have an e-commerce presence, um, you know, in many cases had to, had to shut down operations. So I think what has shown even the good retailers are now going to invest even more in e-commerce. And uh, that's going to create all kinds of opportunities in real estate and for us and, and for the market in general is I think everyone if they were a little bit of a laggard in e-commerce, now realizes that's no longer an option and you've got to be a leader in the space or your business is in jeopardy. Yeah, and I think for us, obviously, it's it's accelerated demand and there's limited supply. So finding that that next high-quality e-commerce building has been pretty tough. I mean, I think as most everyone knows, you know, the e-commerce supply chain takes about three times as much warehouse space as a typical bricks-and-mortar supply chain. So 
you know, I think finding those high quality buildings uh, is, is even tougher today. So I think the supply and demand dynamics are pretty tight. As you think about sort of the last touch dynamic or the last mile, depending on how you define it, we call it last touch. Has this acceleration in e-commerce changed your thinking with respect to what a good last touch or last mile building looks like, you know, what the key criteria might be for it? We've been focused on this, you know, what some folks are calling urban fulfillment or micro fulfillment centers. Um, for a few years, we've opened several. We're doing pilots with many of our customers and sometimes full-blown um, implementations. So what we're seeing is uh, before the pandemic, it was it was really nice to have people trying to keep up with a service level that was set by Amazon for some category of products. I think the pandemic in many ways has accelerated it. People, us as consumers, are expecting uh, a, a retail-like experience in terms of being able to go next door to the drugstore and pick up a product and have it within hours uh, for a certain set of products because they're not able to go to the store. And so what we're seeing is a much higher demand to get products closer to the urban markets, and that's changing the way we think about our network. Um, the challenge really isn't... Um, mapping where those facilities need to be. You just go to where the population centers are. It's the quality of the real estate in those markets. Um, and does it work for e-commerce fulfillment? And you've probably seen some news around people using malls and things like that as a creative solution. Um, but there's not really a good solution for urban fulfillment, uh, at least in an efficient way. Um, so I think that's really the challenge is finding the right type of real estate near the consumer bases um, in a way that we can utilize it with the systems that most of these retailers have today. So are there any specifics in terms of, you know, what that criteria would look like in terms of defining this is good enough? Because again, as you said, I think there are all kinds of business models today. I mean, use cases for simple yards to multi-story to parking garages to uh, whatever, post office. So, uh, you know, clearly not a one-size-fits-all. How do you think about that? What, what, are, the, what are the crazier uh, real estate uh, buildings that you've attempted to utilize? What do they look like? Well, um, we've used parking garages. Um, that, that, I thought that was crazy in the beginning, but um, uh, there's actually quite a good use case for, for parking garages. Um, but I think, you know, even uh, storefronts that, uh, that used to be used as retail space in, in urban markets, um, some of those storefronts, you know, in those old buildings have very high ceiling clearances, right? And you can use them in ways that people never intended when they built the buildings originally. So we've seen very creative use of spaces uh, for this. And I think that as, as more, more and more smart people think about it, we'll continue to, to innovate around it because it's, it's, it's a demand that we have to fulfill. Yeah, for sure. So our investors um, are increasingly focused on sustainability ESG initiatives, when they think about partnering with us on a building investment or when they think about just investing with us in general. I'm, I'm just curious, do you see a, a, a similar sort of focus from your customers or investors or is sustainability not as high on their radar screen? It's high on everybody's radar screen. Um, and, and for us, it's probably less about the buildings themselves and more about our entire supply chain and how we're taking waste out of the supply chain, but certainly we want to be in a building that's, you know, LEED certified or carbon neutral, um, you know, with, with the right lighting systems and air quality systems. 
But for us, we're focused on things like packaging. I mean, how much cardboard are you throwing out every day at your house, right? And how much waste when you open that big box and there's a little small item inside? So those are the things that, that we're focused on is how can we create a package that's just big enough and there's no waste in the in the delivery and, and reduce cardboard and plastics in, in the supply chain. And that's where we see a lot of our customers willing to you know, come alongside of us and innovate because that's one thing they want the experience when the customer gets the product to be a good experience and not a frustrating one. What, what about things around energy? You know, as we move towards solar and battery storage and EV charging and I guess electric vehicles, et cetera, I mean, how important is, are those sustainability features or how important do you think they'll become? You know what? I don't have a good answer for that one, Gary. <laughs> I don't either, but my guess is more important than less uh, over time. I can tell you that I, I drive a Tesla, and I'll probably never go back to a, a gas-powered car. <laughs> Just because you like the acceleration. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, early, I, I've always been a, a big believer in um, reducing, you know, carbon emissions. I, I um And so I just, you know, in my personal life, try to try to live by what I believe and and so I bought a I bought a Tesla in 2013. And I'm still driving it today. It's got 110,000 miles on it, and it's, it feels like a brand new car. And it, you know, I've never had an experience like that with a with a gas powered vehicle. So I'm I'm a fan. I'm a fan as well. So look, let, let's turn our attention to the global supply chain. So for the past 25 years or so, inventory levels have declined, productivity levels and efficiency levels have increased. But the pandemic, I think, broke many global supply chains, at, certainly early on. So simple question going forward, do companies carry more or less inventory? Less inventory, for sure. Um, I mean, oh, I love so this. It's a debate. What's that? I said I love this. It's going to be a debate. <laughs> E-commerce is such a more efficient supply chain than retail. Uh, if you think about all of the steps in retail distribution and how many people are involved, it may look like there's less inventory on the manufacturer's balance sheet, but that's just because it's getting spread to distributors and retailers' balance sheets. Um, in e-commerce, I think there is the opportunity to replace a lot of the inventory that's sitting in retail stores, you know, thousands of retail stores, all the waste associated with that if it doesn't sell and uh, what do you do with the returns, and move it to near urban markets where retail stores become an experience, and then you deliver it by the time the person gets home from a urban fulfillment center. That's gonna reduce inventory significantly, you know, and that's not too far away, I don't think. And then if you look farther down the road with 3D printing, you know, many industries are kind of being completely disrupted by that. And I think inventory will, will be reduced. So I think there's an argument going the other direction. And, um, you know, the argument is that as global supply chains broke, uh, companies lost sales. So there's this argument that there's gonna be redundancy and resiliency measures over over efficiency, at least for the foreseeable future. You're, it doesn't sound like you're seeing that in your business. No, I think that's a short-term impact of, of the pandemic. But I would challenge you to think about where that inventory is in the supply chain. And because it takes so long, you know, in some markets and in some industries, it's, you know, a nine-month lead time by the time you manufacture a product till a consumer actually gets their hands on it. And that just tells you that the, that the supply chains are, you know, way too inefficient. And as those become more efficient and it's direct from manufacturer to a fulfillment center and it's in a customer's hands within, 
within weeks, um, just by definition, it becomes more on-demand manufacturing. So I think we are in a shortage right now because of a pandemic, but it's it's a shock to the system that will make us redesign a lot of these supply chains that, let's be, let's be frank, were built for retail replenishment, not for e-commerce. And this has challenged, you know, even the biggest retailers to rethink how their supply chains are designed and shorten that lead time from manufacturing to sale. Well, and as you do that, I mean, as you look at the global supply chain, do you see a situation where we might go to national as opposed to or in addition to global supply chains? Yeah, this is a good debate. Um, this, this is the redundancy you know, the current, question. Yeah, in the current political environment, I, I mean, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say. I, I, I'd say it's probably a higher probability than not that we end up with two tech supply chains, for example, just due to you know, data privacy and IP concerns with China. You could you could end up with a a Chinese-based supply chain and a and a U.S.-based supply chain around some highly sensitive products. Um, but I think you know I think that's probably the the minority rather than the the majority of the products. I think it's still a very global world. People all over the world like U.S. brands and U.S. products, and I think that will continue for some time. And you know the way that we see the world is manufacturing will move back to more local in many cases, uh, but those products are going to be in demand all over the world. So the supply chain will continue to be global. Yeah. So products like defense, national security, pharma, I guess, in this environment are all things that could likely come back to right. uh, sort of a national supply chain as opposed to, or probably in addition to a global supply chain, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. So, you know, for years we've talked about this imp- the importance of end-to-end visibility in the supply chain. You know, I know that there are a whole host of companies that are working on this. I personally, and we've, we've worked on it for 20 years, I personally have not seen that promise fulfilled. I'm sure that we're going to get some email on, on that potentially. But have you, do you think it ever will be? What are the barriers to entry to, you know, sort of the end-to-end visibility? I think there's lots of promise there. And, and, you know, with things like blockchain, I think there's the beginnings of an infrastructure that would make it possible. I think it's a long ways out. And the reason is, is because there's so many actors in the supply chain. Um, you know, when you have that many players involved, uh, creating any kind of a standard is is very difficult to do. So the more open that platform or standard becomes, the more people who will participate in it, I think you'll see better adoption. But we've seen, you know, you can pick segments of the supply chain a lot more visibility than we've ever had, you know, even five years ago. So I think we're seeing very accelerated adoption, whether we get to the panacea where it's full visibility end to end and everything's, you know, real time dynamic load balancing or or things like that. I think that's a ways out. But I am encouraged by the amount of progress it's made even in the last few years. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it boils down to collaboration and standard uh, setting a standard, right? And I think that's a typical place to get to, unless you have sort of big users of space, big owners of space, big you know large transportation companies all working together to create that common framework and a standard um, that would become the standard. I haven't seen it yet, and they have to be willing to share data, I suppose, as well. So, I suppose there's another hurdle there. So. You know, one of the big topics that we really didn't touch too much on is, is transportation. And um, and I think it is a pretty big topic right now. And, you know, with, with the advent of electric vehicles, you know, potentially in the near term, very significant numbers of future autonomous vehicles. I'd be interested in your comment on that. You know, how does that impact your thinking about 
the supply chain in general, location decisions, fulfillment strategies. How does all that sort of come together for you? Uh, it's, um, it's a very interesting question, and we've, we've thought about it uh, quite a lot. One of the things that, you know, maybe going back to the way we think about automation is it's an or, it's, not, it's an and, not an or. In other words, if you could, if you look at all the regulations around, you know, driver time and, and, and what truck drivers uh, have to go through for, um, you know, regulatory purposes, Imagine if you can combine an autonomous vehicle with that driver. So the driver can take care of the more complex aspects of the of the route, but the long haul, you know, across the country could be autonomous. He could be sleeping during that that period of time. So I think there's lots of use cases or you know, standard runs between facilities that are just full load transfers, that there aren't a lot of side streets and and, and urban navigation. I think there are real use cases in the near term for that type of autonomous vehicle and we're starting to see pilots of that that occurring and how does that change our our supply chain i think it helps us as we think about getting closer to the customer in terms of our inventories close close to the customer we can deliver to a higher percentage of the population in less time it helps with that it, it reduces cost it, it decreases time and i think ultimately makes the supply chain more efficient so it's something that we're very close to and we'll continue to uh uh, build into our future solutions. Yeah, I don't think our our insights are any you know significantly different than yours. I mean, clearly EV will allow you potentially to deliver in city centers at night, uh, whereas you might have noise restrictions in some locations. So I think that would sort of open things up from a fulfillment standpoint. And obviously the the distance component that you talked about, being able to travel sort of long distances, I think actually could create a threat to some of those sort of tweener properties that are sitting, you know, too close for a long haul, but too short for sort of last touch or, or, or last mile. So I think it'll be interesting to see how those assets perform over time when and if, you know, we get to EV and to, to autonomous. Hey, Gary, could I ask you a question? How, how do you think about in terms of where you're investing in, in property now, you know, with, with the shift to more kind of urban fulfillment, do you see less of a demand for kind of the big million square footers in the middle of the country, or how do you think about that? So, yeah, so so I think you're aware about a decade ago or so, we changed our investment thesis and our investment strategy. We're disproportionately allocating capital to the urban core uh, and have been now for more than a decade. So, you know, our basis thesis is the same as yours. We're uh, investing where the consumption sits. The consumers typically don't move. Uh, we're not investing really on the manufacturing side of the supply chain um, because, again, manu the manufacturing side of the supply chain is more likely to move as companies try to arbitrage labor, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I, I think, again, you're going to continue to see us disproportionately weighted to uh, the urban core. And I think the demand is going to continue to grow uh, in the urban core, and so will probably rents. I think you'll continue to see this trade-off between rents um, which are a very small part of total supply chain costs, labor and transportation. And I think, you know, there's the economics that we all have to discuss over time in terms of what makes the most sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. As you look out five or even 10 years, what does the warehouse of the future look like to Tanger Micro? It's a great question. Um, I think I'd answer that question by Looking at an analogy I mentioned earlier, which is the data center, we think, you know, essentially digital is, is leading the way on the physical side. In other words, um, only the largest 
marketplaces or retailers are going to be able to afford to build, build out their own facilities. Everyone else to compete with the Amazons of the world in terms of service level is going to have to leverage a shared facility. So over time, we view e-commerce fulfillment like you would view the cloud. In other words, why would I have my own data center with my own server sitting in there just for me? You've gotten comfortable with your data sitting right next to somebody else's data on a server that you don't own somewhere in the cloud. And so I think eventually that's going to happen in e-commerce fulfillment. We'll have purpose-built buildings for e-com. There's going to be many more than there are today. The idea of having maybe three e-com fulfillment centers in the U.S., for example, to supply the whole U.S. will no longer work. You're going to have to have a much more sophisticated inventory allocation methodology where fast movers are closer to consumers, slow movers are in the middle. And those buildings are going to have to be highly automated um, and make full use of the cube like we talked about before. So to me, it, it looks like the cloud. And I think you know there's an opportunity in the real estate space to create these pre-built kind of e-commerce specific buildings um, that are plug and play and people can move inventory between the facilities almost on demand kind of goes back to our autonomous vehicle question. If you could have vehicles moving inventory between facilities based on demand, similar to how we load balance data in the cloud. Um, I think that's the ultimate goal. And I think that um, maybe not in the next five to 10 years, but somewhere in our lifetimes, that's going to happen. So, hey, Ken, I, uh, I generally concur. I think my vision is very similar to yours, um, you know, for the warehouse of the future. And I think it's not uh, really limited to simply the physical real estate. I think that, um, you know, the way that I'm thinking about it, it looks much more like a warehouse as a service business model, as you were sort of describing it, where we as a real estate provider are going to have to to wrap it with a, a customer service wrapper. Hopefully our customer experience teams on the ground, we're going to have to understand your pain points. We're going to have to get closer to your business and, and really understand hopefully how to leverage our scale to some of our customers' advantage, maybe not as, as, as meaningfully to you, but certainly to our small and medium-sized customers who don't have um, that scale. You know, I see connected buildings, ones um, hopefully with the baseline IT infrastructure that you and I were discussing earlier, um, so that our customers can truly plug and play on their terms uh, in our facilities. I'm hoping that we see sensor technology, drone technology, um, data freeing fl fl um, really freely, not only about how the building itself is performing, but how our customers are operating from an efficiency standpoint. And hopefully, you know, these buildings will be making suggestions on, on improvements. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we see energy-efficient buildings, solar panels, battery technology, EV charging stations, electronic and autonomous vehicles <laughs> at, at some point in a much more meaningful way, uh, all delivering um, sort of more and more um, sort of an increasing number of products to our front doors. But um, anyway, I think our vision is, vision is, is, is quite similar. But, um, yeah, I'm excited. Let's, let's <laughs> <laughs> so we need to roll up our sleeves and get to work. So, right. um, so look, I, I think one of the things that's, that's so exciting about the vision I think that you, you and I both painted is just at the point that we are in history, right? Um, you know, we're, we're actually both, you know, at companies that, you know, have the scale, have the balance sheet, have the desire to, 
I think actually go out and try to make this vision a reality. And I think Ingram Micro, I think Prologis are certainly two of those companies. And, you know, I personally would invite Ingram Micro or anybody sort of, you know, participating in this conference to, to uh, who share that vision to reach out to us, to collaborate. Let's try to figure out how to really bring this vision to life. Um, so, I'm, and I know that you feel exactly the same way. Absolutely. The more, you know, smart, motivated, passionate people we can get as part of this cause, the faster we can make it happen. And like I said earlier, you know, it shouldn't take something like a pandemic for us to tackle some of these hard problems and get them done. So let's, let's pull together and get this done. It's exciting. I love it. So look, with that, uh, Ken, I want to thank you for participating. As always, it's a pleasure to, uh, to be with you and see with you and chat you. I wish we were in, in, uh, in person, but uh, we'll get together soon enough. And let's thank um, you know, everybody who's watching for their time and attention. And I know that there is a wonderful group of panelists and discussion topics coming up uh, after this one. And I hope that people will stick around and, and listen to those as well and get something uh, meaningful out of it. Um, so with that, stay well, and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure.